Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we have heard, uh, obviously, we're coming up to almost a year uh, where uh, after, uh, since the Russian invasion, rather, of Ukraine, and this was supposed to be pretty quick, and of course it wasn't, it has dragged on. And many say, have said that Russia has already lost this war simply because uh, it has not been able to uh, to move forward effectively. And most recently, uh, Putin declaring a 36-hour ceasefire uh, for the uh, Orthodox Christmas. However, is that actually happening? Let's bring in Arl Brown, Professor of International Relations and Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. And with us now, Arl, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to you. So is this a real ceasefire, Oral? I mean, I hear that these things take weeks to plan, or is this just lip service? It is largely lip service. You will notice that Putin did not declare a ceasefire in December uh, during uh, Christmas in Western Europe and Western Ukraine. He declared it after the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church called for a ceasefire uh, to be held for 36 hours. It was a unilateral declaration. It is largely for domestic consumption in Russia. It is meant to portray Ukraine as intransigent, as disrespectful, and that Putin is basically the guardian of Russian orthodoxy and Russian civilization. Are two parties needed in order to have a ceasefire? I mean, is that something Putin de- uh, can declare on his own, or is that something that has to be done in unison with Ukraine or, or any other enemy for that matter? Anyone can declare a ceasefire to make it stick. Both parties have to basically agree to it. And uh, there's doubt that even uh, on the Russian part, this has been a full ceasefire because there's no evidence that they stopped fighting around Bakhmut, where they had some advantage. The Ukrainians uh, claim that uh, Russia has continued to fire some rockets, though at a lower rate. And certainly in the case of the Ukrainians, they have viewed this as a sham as something that is uh, uh, of only propaganda value or an attempt to try to regroup uh, during those uh, 36 hours. So for all intents and purposes, there is no ceasefire. Uh, That was my next question. Is uh, Many have said that this is just a chance to regroup and and reload. Is that the case here, do you think? Or is this more uh, under the guise of, as you said earlier, uh, religious leaders asking him to do so? This has been uh, the pattern of uh, Soviet behavior before, Russian behavior since, that they use a pause to regroup. We can go back all the way in the Soviet days, uh, and let's not forget that uh, Putin was a KGB agent uh, during Soviet times. That's who began his career. In 1956, for example, when uh, the Hungarian... uh, Revolution began, and for all intents and purposes, the Soviet forces were defeated in in Budapest. They uh, called for a ceasefire. They pretended they were withdrawing. They regrouped and then attacked with massive force and crushed the Hungarian Revolution in a very, very bloody way. And uh, this has repeated a number of times. So President Zelensky has good reason to be very suspicious. Um, The ceasefire was first proposed by the patriarch. Uh, of the Orthodox Church in Russia, and one would think that this was a noble gesture on the part of a religious leader, but the Patriarch of Russia has acted more as an agent of the Kremlin than as an independent religious leader. 
Is Putin feeling increased pressure at home, especially from rich oligarchs and stuff to and such to get this done, to finish this, to find a solution of some way? Is he is he is he on thinner ice than he was, uh, say, even a few months ago? If we look at this from the perspective of what are the kind of losses that Russia has suffered, are the sanctions beginning to have some effect? then there ought to be pressure. But dictatorships don't quite the way, uh, work the way we expect it in a transparent system. And this is why dictatorships, as I noted a number of times, tend to look strong and stable until all of a sudden they are no longer strong and stable. And so it's hard to know and even harder to predict what will happen. I suspect there are strains. We know that uh, even some of Putin's supporters are saying that the military in Russia should do better, that uh, there has been some uh, surprising criticism of uh, military leaders as not uh, doing enough or not being successful enough, even though they have launched everything they have at the uh, Ukrainians. But uh, Vladimir Putin is not about to leave voluntarily. He will gamble to see whether he can divide the West whether he can wear the Ukrainians out. He has transferred and transitioned from a war of aggression to basically what is a war of terror. Are Russians asking themselves at this point, what are we getting out of this? I mean, other than, a, other, than a dis, other than a destroyed Ukraine, I mean, what's in it for, for, for the Russian citizenry? What Putin is selling is nationalism. And... Uh, he is playing on the worst instincts of the Russian people, and that is a fear of the outside, a fear of uh, foreigners, uh, xenophobia. He is claiming that it is Russia that is under attack, that the West NATO is trying to dismantle, dismember Russia, that uh, the civilization uh, that Russia and I are used to, that is in danger through uh, these Western uh, woke uh, kind of uh, uh, cultural uh, approaches. And so it's difficult to know how many people believe this. We know that when he began this mass mobilization, which he called a partial mobilization, uh, he mobilized supposedly something like 300,000 uh, troops, perhaps as many as double that fled. So obviously, there are many people in Russia who do not believe it, but it's very difficult to protest in the open because even calling this a war can land you in jail. R.O. Brown with us, Professor of International Relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Arl, as always, thank you so much for your time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Have a nice weekend as well. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.